0: What's up, everyone? Welcome to an all-new episode of Suiting Up, presented by Public.com and OutSystems. This is episode four of season three, and I'm your host, Paul Rabel. Personally, this was an all-time favorite. Of the 80 interviews I've done since 2017, allow me to explain. Mr. Tom Rothman, he grew up in Baltimore playing lacrosse, and he keeps a stick with him in each of his offices and homes here in Hollywood, still... As the chairman of Sony Pictures Entertainment Motion Picture Group. So when you think about Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, a film, by the way, he financed and won awards for, you think of the decision makers in a multi-multi-billion dollar global industry, if you watched Entourage growing up. While the main characters were actors and agents, it always came down to that one gigantic network executive they would ultimately approve both a $100,000 indie film budget and a $300 million major. That's Tom Rothman, one of five major heads of media conglomerates. Yes, you have Rothman at Sony, Iger at Disney, Greenblatt at Warner Media, Redstone at Viacom, and Rovner at NBC Universal. Now, beyond his record-setting goals at Brown on the Lax field. Tom's responsible for all-time greats, over 400 films in his 30-year career. I'll list a few off. Titanic, Avatar, Lincoln, Jumanji, Spider-Man, Castaway, Moulin Rouge, Slumdog Millionaire, Minority Report, X-Men, The Devil Wears Prada, and on and on. On the show, we talk about everything from managing chaos to discipline in financing, encouraging creativity, playing ball in the house, and his predictions on the future of streaming services related to theatricals. Note, we both have fans and attendants in common for our respective business futures. Let's get to it, shall we? This show is made possible by two presenting sponsors, FirstPublic.com. They offer a whole new way to invest. They make the stock market social so you can follow other investors, discover companies to believe in, and invest with any amount of your money. I love this platform. They democratize trading, giving us a space to talk about it, and OutSystems. They provide the tools to help companies quickly build apps for web and mobile to help solve their business needs. Like ours at the PLL, we used OutSystems to help us design our COVID app for the Champ Series last summer, ensuring the health and safety for all players, staff, and coaches. Thank you to both Public.com and OutSystems. All right, Tom, it's great to have you. And uh, I remember just a little bit over a year ago, I was sitting in your offices at Sony Pictures. It was obvious you grew up playing lacrosse, absent my research on you ahead of time, but I saw your wooden stick in the corner with a ball, and we caught up quickly on the PLL, and then you took the stick and ball, and you started having a catch against the wall in your office. (laughs) How often do you do that?
1: (laughs) Uh, Actually, quite often. I'm sort of known for it, and in fact, the funny thing was that at one point in my career, I had a visit from HR, <laughs> and they said, you got a problem. I said, what's the problem? said, certain of your employees feel threatened. I'm like, what? Feel threatened? I'm the least threatening guy. No, they said, you've got some weapon in your hand. I said, listen, now I'm really insulted, okay? Because yeah, that was a weapon. But that means they think I don't know what I'm doing with it. Ah. And believe me, I do.
0: Yeah, that's right. And that's what we talked about next.
1: (laughs) So I had to knock it off. So, uh, yes, I will do it by myself sometimes. I'll throw it against the wall. But no longer when any of my colleagues are in the room because they're probably right. At my advanced age, who the hell knows where it would go. The other (laughs) thing is that one of the things I wanted most in life when I grew up The phrase I heard most growing up in Baltimore was from my mother. Don't play ball in the house. (laughs) And when I finally grew up in the world, I bought my first house, a little tiny ramshackle house in the San Fernando Valley. The very first thing I did, the very first night was to go play ball with my lacrosse stick in the house because I said, it's my house now. And I'm playing ball in the house. So my kids grew up with free reign.
0: <laughs> We've got one of the most uh, storied presidents of production, presidents of, of major studios, and we'll go through kind of the business and architect of your career. But the game had so much influence on you, and that's, and that's where we first connected. You know, here I yeah. am uh, sitting in this executive's office that I had no business in, and uh, I was with my brother, and we were talking PLL, and we were talking Homewood, having grown up in Baltimore. And uh, and then, you know, fast forward now, and we haven't caught up since COVID and our respective bubbles where we're still operating our companies, and we'll get into that. The text exchange that we had today was around, hey, I do something what's called managing creativity. It sounds like an oxymoron, and and it is, but it, it what it reminded me of immediately, Tom, was lacrosse. Hmm. Like... You have to manage the game, but lacrosse is a pure artisan game. It requires a lot of creativity. And some of the best creative skill out there is uh, bestowed to the to the best players in the world.
1: The office that we first met in, yeah, you know it is my office, but actually whose office is is Louis B. Mayer's office of Metro-Goldwyn-Mayer, MGM. Mm. That's his actual office. Very little changed from the 30s and the 40s when when MGM ruled the waves. Yeah. And uh, I've had two significant offices in my career at Sony. I sit in Louis V. Mayer's office. And uh, for the years that I was at Fox, I actually sat in Daryl Zanuck's office. And uh, I feel they're ghosts in some evenings. But the mm. fascinating thing about it, and I'll come to your question about lacrosse as it relates, but the fascinating thing about it is, although the levers and the pulleys, and the operational mechanisms of what what they called Uncle Louie or Daryl did to what I do are entirely actually inverted. That fundamental issue of managing creativity is the same. That is the fundamental. They talk in LA about the San Andreas fault that splits the mm-hmm. that splits right through Los Angeles. The real fault line that runs through Los Angeles is the fault line between creativity on one side and commerciality and business imperatives on the other side. Uh, And my entire career has been spent with a foot on either side of that. And I do think you're not stretching it too much to say that there's an analogy to the free-flowing, yet necessarily disciplined nature of what lacrosse is, right? Not a lot of called plays in my day, much more than it is now. Uh, when, as I said, kiddingly, men were men and midfielders went both ways, it was much more of a fast break, open ended offense. And I'm very glad to see, particularly my alma mater, Brown being at the forefront of bringing something that back.
0: <laughs> there you go.
1: Uh, well, I had to get a plug in. It's it's much more a patterned offense, right? Yeah. Where I think equivalent in some ways to the triangle offense in basketball, certainly called plays are called. And if there's a timeout, you may set things up situationally, right? But it's not football where you're running a set and a design play on every play, right? So you have to have an inventiveness. You have to have an imagination. You have to be able to do what the great one could do and skate to where the puck is. Mm. You have to be able to see what's going to happen. I would say it's even more free-flowing than basketball, which settles into the half-court off now. Yeah. So there's a great deal of creativity involved, and I think having a creative, inventive mind, you obviously did that when you played, and I admire you greatly for it. And I think the great players um, have that. Mm. The other thing is... I find the sport always have that there's a lot that's equalizing about it. You're a big guy. I wasn't a particularly big guy, but I was fast. Believe it or not, my kids don't believe it, but it is true. Somewhere there's film that could prove it.
0: But you're tall. You got you got some size.
1: Yeah, I was tall, but it was pre-weightlifting days. That's Nobody right. Nobody lifted. You just fucking showed up. Yeah. Just show up <laughs> and throw me the ball in a way that I believe was much personally, much healthier. You know, I played three sports in high school. You played lacrosse in the spring, but you played, I played soccer in the fall and basketball in the winter, right? This hyper specialization didn't come into the game until after I was gone. Right. But I still think it's, it's equalizing, you know, some of the best attackmen in the world are, yeah, some of them are big guys, but some of them are little guys. Right. And stick skills can make up for a lot. Uh, And inventiveness can make up for a lot. And guess what? That's true uh, in a creative arena as well. I work in the ultimate meritocracy. Yes, there are isms, and we've confronted them and need to confront them better. And there are systemic isms that have struggled. Systemic racism, systemic sexism, systemic ageism. But within that, if you have talent, talent will out. There's not a bar. If you're genuinely creatively talented, in most cases, you could find an avenue for it. Hmm. And so I think that's analogous, too. And then the last thing I'll say is just what everybody says about every sport, which is it teaches you the, the fundamentals of life. It teaches you teamwork and perseverance and getting up after you get knocked down. And you're not going to do what I do for all the years that I've done it and not get knocked down repeatedly yeah that is the nature of creativity which is there is more failure than success mm. and having played sports as a kid that is the the literal and the figurative field in which you learn that you're going to get knocked down get the fuck back up and as my old coach down in the hall of fame lucky Maloney would say Stick your nose in it.
0: Yeah, it's, it's something that I, I take away from, from sport more than anything else is the, uh, the, the growing resilience to, to failure. And it's like lacrosse is a bit like baseball. And I, I like to use baseball as the analogy in that if you're two for 10, if you're batting 200 or 20%, you're a starter, potentially make 30 million bucks a year in Major League Baseball. If you're going 300, three out of 10 means you're failing seven out of 10 times. You're going to be a hall of famer. Um, So you learn a lot of that resilience. I I want to come back to uh, the meritocracy point because I think, and I'm really curious because you have exposure to both sports and the creative industry and, and, I've been told by my friends in the creative arts, and have seen this that that just the margin is a lot thinner in your world than it is in sports, especially at call it the amateur level. NCAA, there's not many guys who can put seventy five balls in the net. I think it's more data oriented in sport. Where in acting, let's call it, it's, there's like a there's a lot of instinctual guttural sense that the decision makers have or not. Tell me, tell me like how you view the difference between athletes and actors and actresses.
1: Well, it's interesting. I, 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 would, I would argue that point. I would say it looks that way. Hmm. It, what you're saying is that in the creative arts, it's more subjective. And in sports, it's more objective. And from the outside, that's true. But I actually think from the inside, that's not true. Hmm. Because even someone like me, who's been a quote-unquote decision maker about what talent get what job for many, many years... I actually don't make those ultimate decisions. The audience makes them. Hmm. And I actually don't determine what actor is a movie star and what actor isn't. Ultimately, the audience does. I am perhaps in many ways one of many gatekeepers. And everybody's got to get their chance. Everybody's got to get the ball and their chance when the when the starting quarterback goes down and they call your number you got to step up right so you got to get that first shot but ultimately those myriad and in some ways indefinable qualities that make great art which are m- much less definable than you know well I scored 50 points right but they are equally determinative which is You get your shot, and you're either going to speak to the audience in a fundamental way or not, and you may build up and need a couple of shots and a couple of chances, but the way that God reached out and touched Michael Jordan or Steph Curry or Paul Rabel on the forehead and said, you're going to be on the field with a lot of people who do what you do but you're going to be able to do it just a little better than everybody else. That's the same finger that touched Denzel Washington. It may be more subjective than objective, but it's very much like the old line. I believe it was Justice White, I think, who said on the Supreme Court of pornography, which is, I can't define it, but I know it when I see it. Right. And that's the way the audience is about talent. They they know it when they see it. Can you define why? Why, you know, Denzel Washington has the magnetism that he has. I don't know, but that's a gift equal to the greatest athletic gifts that exists. Hmm. Um, and ultimately those gifts like athletic gifts, if they're really, really genuinely special, they stand the test of time. I know it's said that there's, you know, unappreciated genius on every corner in uh out here in hollywood but i actually don't think it's true i think generally speaking talent will out in the end
0: and you know there there is a lot to be said in sports that there's unappreciated genius that didn't get the opportunity or you take a a top player in their discipline and they're drafted to a team and uh that team's quarterback is tom brady and the fate falls in a direction that sometimes is is outside of our control
1: luck is highly relevant and you got to get your breaks and you might not get your breaks Hmm. but i also say going back to what you said before look i'm married to an actress and my brother's an actor my brother's a character actor he's been at it for you know 50 years and he's had his ups and his downs and his breaks, and his, but he's very good and he stayed at it. And if you stick at it, you'll get there. Part of what's hard in the creative arts is attitudinal. It's hard, as we were talking about before, in the face of disappointment and the face of frustration. It's hard to stay positive and stay believing in yourself. Right. And that's required. There are a lot of folks who don't make it Not necessarily because they didn't have the talent, but and I don't fault them for it, but because they don't have the ability to, you know, live that life and be happy with themselves in the face of constant rejection. It's like the basketball player who misses the winning shot but but wants the ball the next time.
0: I think it was Vince Vaughn. I was listening to him talk on a podcast a few years ago, and he had someone, or maybe he ran the math and – He was thinking that there is this kind of age-old belief that people take a trip out west to Hollywood to get into acting, and if they can't get their break by 30, they go back home. And 30 is this arbitrary number that's thrown out because you think you turn the decade here and it's going to work or it's not. The unfortunate thing he said is, most breaks kick in at around 33, 34. And so to think that they put seven years of work and then because of some saying that's existed or has pre-lived the age of attempting to be an actor in a really competitive industry, that that belief that, hey, um, I'm gonna do this one because I love to do it, I'm passionate about it, but I'm gonna be resilient and persistent enough around it. You've worked with, you mentioned Denzel, you've worked with the Leos of the world and the Brad Pitts, Nicole Kidman. So let's take like the, some of the actors and actresses that have had that touch from the hand of God. Are there other uh, characteristics that jump off the screen to you in addition to work ethic?
1: Yeah. I mean, I think that, and by the way, what, what he says is, is, is right. When, when, when young people, and it will happen, you know, somebody's cousin's, you know, friends, brother, where you go, where you spend 10 minutes with them. I always try to do that. Young people come in my office and ask me for advice. I always say to them, if they want to be an actor, close your eyes. Is there anything else, anything, that you can see yourself being happy doing? And if the answer is yes, do it. Hmm. If the answer is no, it's this or bust, then this is what you have to know in most cases, not in Leonardo Capro's case, because he's LeBron James. He was so gifted, so early, so spectacular. He is a once-in-a-generation talent on the level of Michael Jordan or LeBron James. But for most people, what I say to them, it is the mile, not the 100-yard dash. You have to know it's the mile, and you have to be very content with yourself through failures. You know, Churchill said the definition of success is going from failure to failure with uh, with undiminished enthusiasm. And I believe that I'm in a world where I've done okay for more than 30 years because I bet more than 500, not because I bet a thousand. So the other qualities besides God given talent and persistence and a willingness to study there is a great misnomer that acting does not require intelligence. It requires extreme intelligence. Hmm. Some of it may be EQ, emotional IQ, but it requires a high level of intelligence and insight. One of the smartest people I know on earth, uh, and I have, you know, seven years of Ivy League higher education, and one of the smartest people I know in this world is Meryl Streep, okay? she's utterly incomparably brilliant brilliant intellectually but brilliant emotionally too and she brings a level of insight the reason those characters come to light is because there's a there's a there's a level of intellectual insight that's mm. brought to it and i find that very successful actors are that they know that about themselves right tom cruise a guy i've worked with a lot i admire He has an excellent understanding of himself and what his capabilities are and what the audience want to see him do and where he can stretch it and where he can't. The other thing that really, really successful actors will have, in addition to that God given talent, is they will have a very high level of interpersonal insight, a high level of EQ Mm -hmm. and a very strong understanding about themselves
0: in the entertainment and movie business and we're, we'll, we'll stay on the actors as much as the directors and the executives, uh, we talk a lot about Oscars as we talk about championships in sports. And uh, how much do you find in success? Is there an obsession with the end game of winning like there is in sports to the end game of being acknowledged in, through a nomination or ultimately a win of an Oscar? And you mentioned Leo, which kind of had me think about this. Um, is that in the business?
1: Yeah, I, I, it is. I mean, look, ours is a very competitive business. Yeah, It's like sports in that way. It's very competitive. As the head of a major motion picture studio and I've run two and started a third in Searchlight, I have great respect for the other teams, but I'm out there to clobber them every day. And we compete day in and day out. We compete for projects. We compete for talent. We compete for market share. It's not a zero-sum game, but it's not an infinite-sum game either. Mm -hmm. Um, And I think that most really talented filmmakers, writers, producers, directors have a healthy competitive instinct. They want to win. Now, the definition of winning is very varied. Winning an Oscar is one definition of winning, and it's a special one because it's rare and it's hard to do, Mm. right? Leo was a giant for many years before he won his first. And some people for the luck of the draw go years and years doing great work and never win them. Right. Uh, But there are other ways to measure success too. the quality of the work being the most important. You need to be able to look in the mirror and think you've done it the best you can do it. And if that's a serious Oscar picture, that's one thing. But if that's a goofy knucklehead comedy, you want to sit in a theater and hear people laugh. Um, And if that's a big all audience adventure picture you want the box office to be big right Mm. that's why no matter what anybody says now about streaming and wall street's obsession with streaming and the streaming bubble which is basically the equivalent of what the dot-com bubble was Mm. you know 30 years ago is not really reflective of what the mass of talent feel because streaming doesn't really have a scoreboard yep Streaming doesn't really make cultural impact. Hmm. There are a hundred things on streaming every day and 99 of them don't register at all. And that's not what artists making the stuff want, whether they've written it or they've directed it or they've acted in it, or like me, they have financed it and produced it. What they want is to make enduring cultural impact. They want to do something that moves the cultural needle and, that's, you know, quality work that moves the cultural needle. That's winning. And yeah, I would say people out here have a healthy desire to win. Yeah, I sure still do. The day I don't care anymore, whether the movie, as we like to say, opened, which is we're in what they call the parachute business, opens on a Friday. Means does it do a lot of box office on the first day? But I call it a parachute business because you either the parachute either opens, or you're dead. And the Saturday morning that I no longer care whether we opened or we died, that's the day to hang it up.
0: There's there's so much to uh, to unpack. So we'll start first with uh, founding Fox Searchlight. The difference between uh, the creation of uh, a mini major and then being president of production, president of Twentieth Century Fox ceo of fox film entertainment and then flipping over there's there's a lot because you've done a whole fucking lot
1: that's because i'm old unfortunately because i'm old that's a very polite way of saying we have our oldest old man guest ever this is terrible no no no
0: no. so so what it is so chairman now sony pictures entertainment's motion picture group took the group to profitability in 2018 going back to our oscars comment 20 noms in 2020 once upon a time in Hollywood, which was after our meeting a year and a half yep. ago, Mike and I are watching the Oscars, and your name keeps getting called, and everyone's uh, thanking you. So, uh, you know, we don't have to talk about each of these moments, but perhaps like, you know, entering the business, you got your your first kind of lift at Cans with two uh, films you you co produced, and then right. boom. But let's I guess difference between your time as a founder with Fox Searchlight and then running the majors.
1: Here's what's interesting. You're right. Somebody looked me up on Wikipedia, and I have had a, an unusual route, I guess. <laughs> you know, I'm just some kid from Baltimore. I didn't have any uncles in the business or anything, right? i just a kid from Baltimore who used to take the number 10 bus to the Crest Theater on Ricestown Road and, you know, loved the movies. And I started out uh, in the independent film world. Uh, In the 80s in New York and movies you're referring to, I produced films for wonderful, sensationally talented man named Jim Jarmusch. Um, And I produced a film called Down by Law that did very well at the Cannes Film Festival. And that got the attention of the then head of a major studio in Hollywood and brought me to Hollywood. And I kicked around in the beginning. And then I worked at the Samuel Goldwyn Company for a number of years, which was a true indie company and made the first films of a lot of really significant directors who moved from the indie space into the mainstream. Ang Lee, I made his first film and I made six with him subsequently. Ken Branagh, I made his first film, I made many with him subsequently. Anthony McGhella, I made his first two films and he went on to make The English Patient, et cetera. And so I started in the indie world and then the second two thirds of my career have been in both the mainstream and the indie world, where I supervised those. And here's what I would say about that, which is that the commonality, the similarity... When I was at Fox, I made the least expensive film in its history, the first film from my company, Fox Searchlight, called The Brothers McMullen. And I made the then most expensive film in its history, Avatar. (laughs) And this is what I will tell you. One cost less than $100,000. And the other cost... More than (laughs) $100,000. And what I will tell you is they have more in common, more similar than dissimilar, believe it Hmm. or not. Because an audience doesn't care how much a movie costs. They care how it makes them feel. And how it makes them feel is dependent on the characters and the characters' moments and the character's progressions, and the character's emotional arcs through the story. And what you learn in the independent world is you learn to pay a lot of attention to character. And when you carry that into the mainstream world, for all the bells and the whistles and the explosions, and God knows I've blown a lot of shit up in my time, when the characters are resonant, those movies are going to endure. So from a film point of view, there's more in common in those experiences, than there is a part. And I think people are often surprised to hear that. From a management point of view, it's very different. Hmm. When I was starting you know, Fox Searchlight, that was extremely entrepreneurial. i been at Goldwyn, I went to Fox by the good graces of a man named Peter Chernin, who sort of believed in my pitch. And I went into an office and I had me and an actual cardboard Rolodex Uh, Your audience may not know what that is, but they can look it up. You know, you can probably find one one day, you know, either on eBay or in the Museum of Natural History, a cardboard Rolodex and a telephone with a wire on it. Right. And I went to work trying to make shit happen. Very entrepreneurial, very aesthetic driven. Yeah. And that was where I made my bones. When you move up the ranks, now I manage a organization that probably under my auspices alone is, you know, eight or 10,000 people. It's a global organization. We have offices in 40 countries around the world, right? I manage a slate where the investment in a year, a given year, is the slate investment is over a billion dollars. The marketing investment is over $3 billion. I run what's essentially a package good company, too in terms of selling DVDs um, yeah. and digital exploitation. This is a managerial post, right? And there are many the talented people underneath me who are, you know, doing the line work that I did when I was at Searchlight. But because I did that, because I came up through the ranks, because I know, I actually know how the engine is put together, because I put it together in my youth, I'm a better manager of a car dealership than perhaps someone who has no idea how the engine in the car is actually built.
0: Did you know you were doing that when you were doing it? In other words? No,
1: no, no, I didn't. And I didn't have any, you know, my career has been a really nice progression and I feel very grateful for it. Deeply grateful and grateful to the people who've, you know, the people in the companies who have taken chances on me, um, you know, my boss is at Fox and my boss at Sony and the late Sam Goldwyn. And people, I've had many mentors who've given me great opportunities, but I didn't have some mapped out life plan. Hmm. When I left New York and came to California, I was 30. It was, it's interesting about the Vince Vaughn thing. I think I was 32 and I had this offer to go to work then Columbia. I worked at Columbia twice The first time I got fired from there, uh, which proves that's not a death knell. I just thought I was too young, too young not to take a chance. Hmm. And each time I've gone along and made a career turn, it was because it was never for the money, ever. And I can honestly say I never took a job, turned down a job, left the job because of what the money was. I did it for the opportunities. Hmm. And I did it because each time it seemed like a new challenge. And I probably told you then how much I loved and how honored and special it was to come to work on the movie studio on the historic lot. And I loved leaving my office late at night in the gloaming and the ghosts of all the greats were there. I haven't been at that office now for 10 months since March. Um, And I miss it profoundly. And it reminds me not being able to be there because of COVID obviously uh, reminds me of what a distinct and remarkable privilege my career has been. That's what it's been. It's been a privilege.
0: We're going to take a quick break from Tom and the movie business to tell you about our presenting sponsors, like an ad break from the golden globes though. This first one hit a monumental moment this week. 1 million people are on public.com right now. Congratulations to our friends and partners and and one of my favorite podcast hosts, a mentor of mine and two-time Suiting Up guest, Scott Galloway, gave us a shout out on Pivot this week. And I invested in a valuation of $100 million. No one had heard <laughs> of this thing. And then I started noticing really cool people were going on this thing. Cindy Gallup, Paul <laughs> Rabel, you have go in public. Go on, go on, Prof. Thank you for the shout out. That was Brett playing that thing live. He got in at $100 million post money. It's 10x for him already. Here's the rest of the read. On public.com, you can buy fractional shares on thousands of companies and participate in a community that's built for collaboration and learning. That's public.com. And alongside the million-member threshold news, public also shared they're officially PFOF-free. That means payment for order flow. What they also announced is they became the first platform to switch on optional tipping in the app. This is 100% opt-in for members, and all members still have the ability to avail $0 in commission fees on standard trades. So this is a company that's cutting edge that continues to evolve and is innovating. So join me today on public.com forward slash suiting up. That's a special URL public.com forward slash suiting up and start with $10 in free stock on me. And you can also follow me at Paul Rabel I write about sports, media, tech, and CPG public companies. You can follow Prof Galloway as well. I believe he's at Prof Galloway. This is valid for U.S. residents 18 and up and subject to account approval. See public.com forward slash disclosures. And thank you to OutSystems. They are an applications business that make the difference for you and me. Allow me to explain. They have a modern app platform for building the software that companies need and otherwise haven't resourced internally to build. They're fast, they're right for the future, and they're inexpensive. OutSystems empowers teams to develop and deploy innovative cloud applications for capturing new markets, delivering new services, and winning new customers. You can build the difference with OutSystems like we do at the PLL, and you can learn more at OutSystems.com. Oh, and before we go back to Tom, Crunchbase just released the five largest funding rounds of the week, and get this, two of the five, public.com and out systems public has raised 220 million out systems 150 million that's what we call the suiting up podcast bump thank you very much back to the show we're 10 months post the initial wave of covid but over the last 10 years and probably a little bit longer the movie business has changed you know we started mentioning mgm at the top of this conversation they now have gone through you know, different acquirers considered a a mini major. If you look at the the big five now, yours included, you have Sony Pictures, you have NBC Universal slash Comcast, Walt Disney, Viacom CBS, Warner Media, and this is ATT. And so those are those are the big five. And then, you know, again, fast forward uh, and the way that you kind of carefully deconstructed what you've done. Major studios, indies, B movies, animations, TV packaging—all the stuff you said is a part of what you oversee and manage, and try to invest to try to take more market share day to day in your competition. But what we've seen with COVID acting as an accelerator of a lot of industries—we talked a little bit. Or you mentioned a little bit of streaming wars. Four of the five, I would argue, Viacom, CBS, Paramount Plus is uh, is 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 well behind. Um, the Peacocks, D-plus, HBO Max, and I think uh, D-plus is in the lead, although their engagements are, are far lower than Netflix. So we could talk about streaming forever. This is the, kind of the, the wheelhouse that, that I spend a lot of time on thinking about live sports. However, the big news over the last month and a half was Warner Media saying, hey, we're going to simul-release our theatricals to HBO Max for 30 days, then we'll pull them off HBO Max. And I was reading about your company getting a pop from it. Because of exactly what yeah. you said, Hollywood's creatives wanting to maintain a theatrical business. Additionally, you are still open to the streaming business, having sold Tom Hanks's feature yeah. uh, for seventy million to Apple. So, what what's going on in the modern movement?
1: Well, it's a lot. It's in all you know, and here it comes, Grandpa again. But you know, <laughs> in thirty-five years of doing it, this is certainly the most dynamic environment that I've been through. But it's not the only dynamic environment I've been through. And that's very important. And I think that's why I have a perspective on it that maybe some other people don't. Because I lived through the creation of the VHS. When I started out, there was no home entertainment. You couldn't mm. watch a film at home. You had to go to the Bleecker Street Cinema to watch Revival. And when Is that it the came Golden out, Age? everybody said, <laughs> they go <going, laughs> yeah, exactly. I was six. <laughs> everybody said, what they say about streaming today, they said about Blockbuster. Blockbuster is going to kill your business. Who's going to go to the movie theater when they could just rent it and take it home and watch it in their home word for word. They said the same thing. And in the 1950s, if you're a student at all of Hollywood as I am, when television came out, they said the same thing. Who's going to go to the movie theater where you can watch the same stuff at home. And when the 300, 400, 500 multi-channel cable universe came out, they said, well, there's so much on basic cable. And by the way, there is. There's great stuff. There's been great stuff. John Langrath and Fox FX for years. I mean, great stuff. HBO, it's fantastic. Who would go to the movies in 2019 with all of that same at-home competition? $42 billion. That's what the worldwide theatrical box office was. $42 billion. And that's because that is reflective of a human behavior. So here's what I would say to you, Paul. Do you think that when the pandemic is over, okay, there'll be anybody to watch the Lakers at Staples or will it be empty?
0: Well, both of our businesses rely on their people fucking going.
1: <laughs> yeah. Well, wait a minute. I can watch it at home on my big screen TV. I don't have to go there. I don't have to park. I don't have to wait in line. Right. Right. You know, I don't have to pay a hundred dollars for a hot dog. It's free at home. Yeah. But it's different. Okay? Going is fun. Going to live sports is fun. Going to Disneyland is fun. Going to Broadway is fun. Beyonce will pack the Rose Bowl again. Mm. Doesn't matter how much of her stuff is available on Spotify. Okay? movie theaters when this is over will be packed now having said that the changes you alluded to are very real the windows between times at which movies are available in movie theaters and then eventually available in some format or not at home those times will shrink as they sh- as they as they should shrink right simultaneous in my judgment I, I look, I understand. I don't think that was a Warner's thing. I think that was an AT&T thing. Mm -hmm. And there are two different problems they've had, what they did and how they did it. Both of which have been problematic for us, for them, but for us, we have a distinct advantage in the world that you outlined, which is we are a company pledged only to our assets. We are not pledged to our own internal streaming services which we mm-hmm. must lost lead, right? right? We are pledged to do what's best for the individual asset. For Greyhound at that time, with all every theater closed everywhere in the world, and the movie very timely because of the seventy fifth anniversary of VE Day, right? Right. The best thing for that movie was Apple. For Spider Man, I promise you, next Christmas. The theaters will be filled with fans passionately excited to go to see the next Spider-Man Homecoming movie and it absolutely positively will not be available for free on some streaming service on the same day. Right? Mm. You want to see Spider-Man? Get a motherfucking babysitter. It's worth it. Yeah. (laughs) It's worth it. So what we need to do is, and this is a highly technical, highly technical movie term I'm going to give you, right? And I learned it from Beyonce, who gave this advice to see some young people who they asked her what they should do to be successful. And she said, you should make dope shit. So that's what we need to do. We need to make dope shit. Yeah. It, we got to make great stuff. What I can tell you is, The vast majority of what is on all of these streaming services is mediocre. And it is mediocre, as the audience knows, because we talked about the history of the movie business. And for all of that history, two things are incompatible, quality and quantity. The reason HBO's stuff was so great was because they were extremely selective And they weren't in the mass quantity business. They were in the excellence business, right? Volume and quantity. I've never known in any creative industry for those two things to coexist. Care, curation, excellence. That requires real work and selectivity. Yeah. And that's what theatrical movies will require going forward. We will have to be selective. Good has not been good enough for a long time. Uh, and it certainly won't be in the new world. Only great will do. But if it is, it's. I firmly believe it's going to be advantaged to us with respect to talent coming to work for us because talent want to make cultural impact, as we said before. Yep. And theatricality. We spend $100 million, Paul, $100 million worldwide. It's probably an average marketing our big movies around the world that helps make cultural impact and filmmakers want audiences to experience their stuff not to have it come and go on streaming so it's an advantage for us in terms of competing with talent and also assuring that talent that whatever is best for the individual asset that they've created that's what we will do because that's what's in our interest we're not servant to another lost leading master.
0: And this is why I think when the movies get back into theaters, there will be such an uplifting uh, comeback of empathy for society. So if if the goal for the best creatives is cultural impact and distribution what covid has also done is led to this homogenous culture because we're all at home and empathy comes from exposure on the streets and and like being with different people who don't look sure. like us talk like us move like us and uh that is a a long tail negative impact to society and and i think partly why among a number of macro things have led to such a political divisive state that we're in. So the thing that I've always found, and you talked about it even with the top talent in acting, is their EQ. They have at moments in their life, whether they're gifted like Leo or have experienced trauma or have uh, their own challenges with mental health and and the level of realness that they can bring is is their, their acting is so quality because they can empathize and they can be that character. So the blockbuster theory, it's shifted also in, in your time uh, running major studios. It used to be investing into 25 blockbusters, and now it seems like let's make bigger bets on fewer than 10 or potentially half a dozen. The 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 difficulty is that as Wall Street often says, diversify your portfolio, um, you know, spread out the eggs into different baskets. What the movie business has shifted to, and and I think the the canary in the coal mine was NBCU, who was first really trying to, to to get to profitability and focusing on margin versus dope shit. You've been able to seemingly in your career do both, and you know, one we can maybe look at Titanic as an example where you're known in the industry of being really tight and diligent on budget and and bringing. A, uh, a major motion studio like Sony to profitability while also making those huge bets where you, there's a risk of them not opening.
1: Yeah, well, I can tell you, I wasn't uh, tight on the budget on Titanic. Not for not trying, but uh, <laughs> that's the opposite. Um, that's the one you learn from by surviving. I have, a, I have a life jacket prop in my office. You may have seen it. And it says to Tom, a fellow survivor, Jim Cameron. We survived Titanic because of the genius of Jim Cameron. That was a production in which everything went wrong and a film in which everything went right. So that that's the exception that proves the rule. The larger question you're asking is, I have a mantra, maybe learned from having survived Titanic, which is what I try to do is, I try to be fiscally prudent, so that I can be creatively reckless. And I try to do both of those things at the same time. I try to be fiscally conservative and creatively ambitious all in one. That way you can push at the creative boundaries. And I'm a believer that you must push at the creative boundaries in the biggest of blockbusters, right? Um, No matter what kind of IP you have going in. It's got to be great. It's got to be have freshness and originality to it. Uh, you got to push it creatively. Um, but you want to be able to live to fight again if you fail, right? So if I have an overarching principle in my curation part of my job, it's that. Uh, fiscally responsible, creatively irresponsible. And I like to pair those two things uh, uh, together. It's part of the oxymoronic, uh, nature of my, you know, the fascinating days that I get to live with respect to the blockbuster mentality and the empathy point you make that that's actually quite relevant because for the biggest blockbuster, no matter what it is to succeed, it has to have the quality that we talk about in our rooms is relatability. There has to be something that's relatable about it. The reason that Tom Holland is as marvelous a Peter Parker as he is, right? And that those two, and we're making the third one right now, homecoming Spider-Man movies, have been so spectacularly successful, the last one being the, the uh, highest grossing movie in the history of Columbia Pictures, all its nearly 80 plus years, is because he's very, he can fly around and climb on walls and has super strength, but he's very relatable. And his problems are, are very, very real. And you feel genuine empathy uh, for him and you care. And remember what I said a little while ago, an audience doesn't care how much a movie costs. Hmm. They care how it makes them feel and to make them feel something, it has to be relatable and it has to be empathetic. Right. And by the way, that's true. If it's a tragedy, um, if it's a comedy, if it's a drama or if it's a, you know, an action blockbuster. Yeah. And coming up from the indie world, that's what I learned. And that's what I try to focus on. So it's fair to say that maybe more than some other folks in my job, I do pay a lot of attention to the quality of the character work. And look, I'll give you a, a fun, silly example. It's just a silly movie, but it's delightful. It's delightful. And that's Jumanji, which has turned into a big, big franchise for us. The action's great. The comedy's great. The casting is great. But what makes that movie is not the fact that it was Jumanji. The IP was meaningless. What it was was the relatability. It was the fact that every little skinny high school kid like I was would like to close his eyes and pretend just for once he was the rock, (laughs) right? And what would it be if the you know sexy mean girl in high school wasn't her she was jack black right yeah you identify with those characters then you go on the ride then you enjoy it then you have all the special effects and whatever but trust me no special effect no blockbuster effect has the same impact as a moment of relatability.
0: Mm, yeah, Dwayne Johnson's career has uh, has really been impressive. Um, and, and I know the the Jumanji series that you've done with our, our buddy Matt Tolmach too, yes. among other films, uh, has, has been wildly successful.
1: When I gave Dwayne, he gave me the honor of presenting him his star on the Hollywood Walk of Fame. And I said to him many wonderful things about him, and I said, Dwayne, I don't think this is the moment for me to mention That you're in my first movie together was Tooth Fairy. I think we should probably let that (laughs) one go by the board.
0: I watched that. I also read his first biography. The Rock says.
1: Talk about perseverance. Yeah. And an athlete. Talk about dedication and an athlete and, and an athlete's dedication. Yeah. And a guy who gets out what he puts in. Yeah. That guy works hard and. He's a great partner.
0: If I was one of those lucky young kids that come in and, and sit down with you and say I wanted to be in an acting, and you asked me that same question you said at the start of the pod, um, I would have had my eyes closed and said, I could see myself playing professional sports. And I say that because I took two acting classes in college with John Aston Sr. at Johns Hopkins. Right. And I I, I find it such an amazing discipline um, and always so inspired every year Win the Academy's oscars emmys yeah
1: it's way way harder than lay people think yeah uh it actually is very difficult and many are called and few are chosen
0: yeah it was a incredibly humbling two semesters for me the james cameron titanic you mentioned the production yes. disaster uh but the you know you you said big success i mean huge fucking success 11 oscars best picture yeah two billion gross.
1: Well, it was the highest grossing movie in history (laughs) until only James Cameron passed it. Well, that's a lesson in what we were talking about before, actually. That's actually a a lesson in many of the things that we've talked about. Perseverance, you know, um, and I give credit to those of us who were at Fox at the time and above all to Jim Cameron who kept Persevering in the face of obstacles that the movie business had never encountered. We were facing problems that we'd never faced before engineering problems, and jacking system problems, and studio construction problems, and things that went beyond mere movie making, uh, all of which were unanticipated. And Jim Cameron kept at it. And in truth, you know, 20th Century Fox kept the faith. We were partnered with Paramount and had a very unfortunate deal with them, and they were no help to us at all. They wouldn't so much as toss us one of those lifesaver ringlets. They wouldn't so much as toss us one of those in the water. They were happy to let us uh, sink. Um, and uh, and we didn't. Uh, <clears throat> in fact, when Jim Cameron got up there to accept One of his many Academy Awards for it, he said he wanted to thank the people at Fox because they were, quote, dressed in their best and prepared to go down as gentlemen. I don't know that it was always gentlemanly, but we kept the faith. And I think the interesting lesson about that is, and this is not a credit to me at all, it's a credit to Bill Mechanic, who was managing the show, to Peter Chernin, who was in charge of the company at the time, and to Rupert Murdoch, who owned the company at the time. There came a point in the probably year and a half worth of delays in post-production when we could have finished the film as what it was. And in that stage, it was pretty darn good. As a matter of fact, I would say it was very good. But Jim Cameron said, if you want it to be great, I need a yet another six months. Hmm. And another six months meant missing another release date. It meant tens of millions of dollars more, right? It meant heaps more of media disapprobation, which we were getting beaten up in the media every single day. There was a clock on the front page of Variety in those days when Variety was a daily newspaper. And it was a clock and it had a ship of Titanic with the 20th Century Fox on the logo on the prowl sinking more every single day, Mm -hmm. sinking as the movie wasn't delivered. Uh, And the media had decided that it was the greatest disaster in movie-making history, and we at Fox were the stupidest executives in history. So it would have been easy at that point. The easy decision would have been said, fine, let's just get this over with, get it out. We're all going to get fired anyway. And the decision taken in that very dispositive moment was to give Jim the yet added time to make it great because we were in such trouble that the only way out was all the way in. And that is a very, very difficult decision to make. And I learned a tremendous amount from it. Hmm. And he took the more time and the added money and he made it great. And because it was great, Because he was right about it, and because he happens to be a genius, it didn't open that big, Titanic. It didn't open to, I've opened a hundred movies to bigger Fridays than that, but it never moved. It did what no movies do. It did the same thing the next weekend and the next weekend and the next weekend and the weekend after that, and it had an absolutely still to this day. Never has been matched and never will be matched run at number one at the box office week after week, after week, I think it was eight or nine weeks or something like that before something finally knocked it off. And the same thing happened all around the world. And it became not just the highest grossing movie in America, but the highest grossing movie in every country. It opened everywhere in the world. Why? Because it was great. And if it had been very good, if we had taken the expedient choice, at the moment of greatest pressure, right? And greatest opprobrium that was being put upon us, it wouldn't have been.
0: Yeah, I think entrepreneurs everywhere, and we have a lot of them that listen to this show, can relate, at least on on their own path to scale. Because whether it's a, a human emotion, a relationship, a business, or a movie venture, what it is that we're focused on in our respective narrative of our life feels like sometimes it it can be that make or break so the the resilience and that faith to bet on greatness is is such a great lesson and i'm no movie executive but i do know that um when a, a movie finishes really strong you could continue on the script or, or you have to have the discipline to say, Hey, that was just really fucking good. And it's time to, to, to close this one. And I feel that way right now with this podcast.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Fair enough. Smart move.
0: (laughs) But, uh, but man, it was awesome. And and again, I could talk to you for hours.
1: Thank you. Uh, It's a big treat for me. I never get to spend such time with a legend of our sport, right? That's being what I was. I was one of those little boys who used to back up the goal at Hopkins. They don't let that happen anymore because you guys shoot the ball too hard. Yeah. And you shoot the ball so hard because you got plastic sticks that weigh nothing. Right. I'd like to see you pick up an old wooden stick and see if you get it up there over 90 miles an hour. That took skill, uh, which I did not have, means you. But my father was a Hopkins man. I, I can't say it's where my absolute first uh, emotional loyalties in the lacrosse world lie since I'm a, a brown boy, but uh, it's a big treat for me to get to, to talk to a giant and I've watched what you've done and I see what you're doing with the PLL um, and expanding out. And you are an entrepreneur and I think you're an entrepreneur at, at heart. And I think looking at the, from the outside, you have found your calling. So just as I, I wouldn't have bet against you back at home would, I won't bet against you now.
0: <laughs> well, I appreciate that. It means a lot. Um, and when we get through COVID and these, and these vaccinations reach either herd immunity or, or we're able to fight this thing off as, as if it's a, a forest fire, analogously, I'll, I'll bring a wooden stick and we have a catch outside of your offices.
1: Uh, I'll show you my old face dodge. They don't do those anymore.
0: And I will most certainly take him up on that catch outside of Sony Motion Picture Studio or maybe we hit it in the office again. A final thought for you though, Tom, if you're listening. I do believe I can shoot over 90 miles an hour with a wooden stick. Sitting across from me right now is my producer, Brett. Maybe that's our next YouTube video. And if you all are still listening up to this point. Within the week of this episode dropping, Tom, good luck to you and the team in the 78th Golden Globe Awards this weekend, Sunday night at 5 Pacific time. Among a number of nominations, The Father, which is a Sony Pictures Classics production, is up for Best Motion Picture Drama, and The Crown is a Sony Pictures Television production. It's also up for Drama, though this time Best Television Series. And if you haven't done so, please consider subscribing to this podcast. If this is your first time listening, welcome. You can find us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to your shows, and consider giving us a rating and review. That goes a long way, and I greatly appreciate you. This show was presented by public.com by creating a whole new way to invest. Public also makes the stock market social, so you can follow other investors, discover companies to believe in, and invest with any amount of money. Follow me on public at Paul Rabel for my weekly musings on public companies in sport, media, like the ones we talked about today, and tech. And thank you, OutSystems. They provide us with the tools to help companies like the PLL quickly build apps. And when it comes to our latest app and project with OutSystems, that was designed at the Championship Series this past summer, and it helped ensure the health and safety of all of our players, staff, and coaches within our bubble. Everything, everything has been made possible by the incredible team here at PLL Podcast. If you listen to Suiting Up, you should look up PLL Podcasts on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you listen to your podcasts and see what else we do. This was produced and edited by Brett Roberts, research done by Andrew Manning, graphics and design, Liam Murphy, coordinated by RJ Kaminsky, and support on our Overtime newsletter from Joe Keegan. We'll see you next week for You'll Have to Wait and See.